Hi, I'm Paul, and this is our Connect Sessions, episode 17. This week, we'll be sharing a conversation Amelia and I had with Mark Davis, board member of the Palm Springs Modernism Week, and we'll also discuss the recent preview of the Broad Museum in downtown LA. I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Ken, and Donna. Donna, how's your week? Hi, everyone. It's good to talk to you all. I have been so crazy lately that I, I feel a little out of touch, but I've had a very busy week and it will continue to be busy. I went down um, Sunday night. I flew down to Tuskegee University, actually flew to Atlanta and drove to Tuskegee University in Alabama to give a talk at the School of Architecture there. And I imagine most people don't know much about Tuskegee, so I'm going to say a little about it, which is that Tuskegee University is a historically black college, not founded, but opened basically by Booker T. Washington. And the College of Architecture is called the Robert Taylor School of Architecture. And Taylor was the first African-American graduate of Harvard, I believe. And please, everyone, forgive me if I got that wrong. And first registered architect. The school is uh, about 100 students, around 100 students. And um, it's a, you know, it's a medium-sized program. And it offers a Bachelor of Architecture. And I went down and gave a version of the talk that I'm giving at the AIA. It was a little more student-focused because I was speaking to students. And I got to do some critiques with them. And I got to sit in on a history class and just went out to have barbecue with the, a group of the students who were talking about wanting to start up a, a student group that can sort of do some creative work together. It was just a really energizing, fantastic trip. That's awesome. What was the talk about? So I do this talk about non-traditional practice as it relates to the changes currently going on with the AIA, with NCARB, with NAB. And I show a lot of work that I'm doing as a nonprofit and that other people, for example, I used Mitch McEwen and I used Elizabeth Timmy. I used both of them as examples in my talk of people who have architecture degrees but are doing maybe what we would call non-traditional practice and just doing work that's very based in societal needs. I think these students at Tuskegee are getting a Bachelor of Architecture, and I really talk to them about what a fan I am of the BARC. I think it gives people a well-rounded, excellent education that sort of gives them a basis in practice. And coincidentally, just today, Fred Sharman published on his 765 blog a little article called Shaky Tripod. And it's a brief article, but really concise and, and excellently sort of outlines where we are in architectural education right now. And it sort of identifies that the Bachelor of Architecture can be this very professional, practice-oriented degree. And then you can get into some very sustained research within the Masters of Architecture. And then if you want to get a PhD, of course, you'd go for this very deep dive into one specific topic. But he really lays out some interesting ideas about thinking about the future of education and asking the students that are being educated right now what they think the future of our practice is going to be. And that completely relates to the work I'm doing with the emerging professionals and that this talk is based around. That, you know, young people are graduating right now into a very different architectural field from what I graduated into 20-some years ago. And we older people in the field need to start taking their reality into consideration when we think about how we're structuring practice and our discipline. So, and just, you know, being around the students is so energizing. They were all so wonderful. They ask great questions. They're just super curious. It's really good to be around students, young people. <laughs> was the barbecue dry or wet? It was, I'm not quite sure I would describe it in either of those terms. It was not super saucy, if that's what you mean, but it was very similar to the Lexington barbecue that I love from Lexington, North Carolina, which is chopped pork and served with coleslaw on the bun as a sandwich and more vinegar based, not as vinegar based as the Lexington style is, but it was quite, quite vinegary and totally delicious. 
and, you know, sweet tea with it. And um, it was just a real pleasure to talk with these four students just about what their dreams are, what they're trying to do, everything ranging from how do I get an internship to, you know, just the really big philosophical questions of how we look at the world through the eyes of being an architect. So it, it was fantastic. That's great. Does that school have like a specific focus over there? Not really. It's really a good general Bachelor of Architecture. I talked to some first-year design students who were really learning about shadows, how shadows cast, and doing some very small-scale, intimate, you know, a small outdoor theater, a pavilion, a little residential office structure. I talked to some students who were working on a the NOMA competition, which is the National Organization for Minority Architects. It's a competition for a library, and there were some students doing a sort of Katrina a master plan for a neighborhood post-Katrina. So, you know, good, broad-ranging Bachelor of Architecture you know, they're learning about some software, but not that's not the emphasis by far. It's a good, well-rounded program. And I am such a fan of the Bachelor of Architecture. I wish it would come back and be the predominant architecture degree, frankly. That would be my preference. Does the school attract mostly Alabama residents or? No. And that was actually shocking to me. Uh-huh. I met several students from California, a couple from San Francisco Bay Area. There was one guy from London and wow. several from other states out in the West. And uh, yeah, I mean, quite a few from the South, but I was actually shocked that there were students from all over. And it's really, it reminded me of Cranbrook in that it's, you know, Tuskegee, Alabama, it's in the middle of practically nowhere. And it's on this very, very beautiful campus where the, the sorry, I'm just going on and on about this, but it was so exciting. The focus of the campus from the beginning, the focus of the university was to emphasize both the hand and the mind. So historically, all of the bricks that the buildings on campus that were built out of originally were made, the bricks were made by the students and the students made the buildings themselves. So a lot of the buildings that still stand on campus were made by the students themselves. So it reminded me in a lot of ways of Cranbrook with this emphasis on the craft as well as the mind. Robert Taylor had designed the first chapel that was on the campus and the students built it by hand. And then that building burned in, I think, 1956. And Paul Rudolph did then the chapel that stands there now. And the the Rudolph Chapel is gorgeous. So so, so beautiful. Doesn't quite have that same hand-hewn feeling of the very, very early, you know, uh, 19th century buildings, but still very beautiful nonetheless. And even then to this day, they really do emphasize the importance of handwork and craftwork as well as the philosophical leanings of an education. So yeah, I kind of fell in love with Tuskegee. So people out there listening and that maybe you're thinking about a, a place to go and just immerse yourself in architecture for a while, th- maybe think about Tuskegee. It's a great program. So good. So was this talk part of their lecture series? Yeah, yeah. I was just a visiting lecturer. Yeah. They do their lectures at three in the afternoon during Design Studio, which a couple of different schools I've heard of do that. And it seems odd to me because it sets up a, you know, a, a pull between the students that want to be in studio doing their work and wanting to go listen to someone speak who you just never know if they're going to be super boring or not. So, but yeah, I was just their visiting speaker. Or it could be great for people like me that love to procrastinate and would look for any opportunity to leave studio. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I feel like I regret that I did not, as a student, go to every single lecture that came just because you need to hear outside voices, you know? So it really is not not good to just ignore those opportunities when someone comes in. And I'm not at all complaining about my own talk. My talk was well attended and the people who came were asked great questions and uh, 
It was, yeah, it was really good. So I'm fired up from that. So I'm going to be super talkative today. Sorry, I've already been talking way too long. Do you know if they record their lectures? I don't think they did. Mm. I don't think they did. Oh, I would have loved to have watched your lecture. Maybe it will be at the AIA? It'll be similar. I mean, it's a similar talk that I'll give at the AIA. Not exactly the same, but, uh-huh. but, but because it keeps evolving as the AIA and NCARP stances on these things like graduation upon licensure, etc. As those things change, I'm updating the talk. So it, it will be a little updated, but um, it'll be similar. Okay, so someone else talk now. Ken, <laughs> Ken, how are you? I haven't had quite that busy week. I just found a book that my fiance got me. I think it's a late uh, Thanksgiving Day gift. No, wait. Um... <laughs> you get a gift on Thanksgiving? <laughs> That's how we roll. Dang. That would make the holiday so much better. That's how we roll in the Midwest. <laughs> you guys are so traditional. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's called um, Daily Rituals, How Artists Work, I think. And uh, I've always wanted this one. So it's a late Valentine's Day gift. So I really enjoy digging into those. I'm always interested in other people's process because um, I always find it very helpful to kind of fine tune and see where um, successful people have moved and how they've moved and how they've done their work. So I will ride the coattails of people who have gone before me if I can get to be half as good as they are. So so that's one thing. I finally, I'm now a... A full member of the AIA, a full complaining member of the you AIA. You are? Yes. Oh, congratulations. Boy, that wasn't cheap, was it? <laughs> no, but you know what it did get me? It got me free entry into the uh, Atlanta event. So that was uh, helpful. Exactly. That does help. Well, yay, congratulations on that. Yeah. But wait, yeah. I need to go back to your book. There's this book called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Have you ever heard of that one? No. Yeah, when you're talking about process and how people, you know, go through these artistic processes, that might be a good one for you to look at also. My husband swears by it. Yeah, one of my favorite, um, I always run into this problem where I have a problem starting. So I always, I go back to this quote all the time. And it's actually, I've read the quote and it's been misquoted by, um, who's the big graphic guru guy who wrote the manifesto? What's his name? Oh, Bruce Mao. Bruce Mao. Bruce Mao. And my favorite one on that list is attributed to uh, John Cage. And John Cage said, purported to have said, not knowing where to begin is a common form of paralysis. His advice was to begin anywhere. So I really rather like that that statement. Yeah. But it's, it's misattributed. Um, at least it's attributed to him, but it's a little more, um, it's a little wrong in, in how he was quoted, but uh, I like that quote a lot. So I got the AIA. I've got the tickets. I'm now Airbnb, trying to figure out Airbnb for Atlanta. So that's interesting. And then the one thing I'm kind of struggling with this week, and I think I think a lot of, a lot of listeners would appreciate this, but I've been at this firm now for just about four months, and I still feel like the new guy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that is that struggle where I'm kind of, I'm catting, but I really don't have a project yet of my own. So I'm kind of Mm -hmm. in this really weird space when you start at a new firm where you've been brought on for a purpose. You've been brought on for your skills, you know, your skill set and your expertise and all of that. And I think... The one thing they haven't figured out yet is where to put me on a, on a project. So I've been doing a lot of helping out on projects and uh, working on a particularly difficult project at this point. And um, so that's uh, particularly challenging. I think I'd lo- I would really like to hear from people about how they manage those early expectations about starting at a firm. It's really, really complicated trying to figure out where your place is in the firm and Everything's so new and you still feel like the new guy. And when you come in early and you, you leave early, what's, you know, you're not leaving early. You're leaving when you want to leave, but you feel still feel like you got to like, I got to be here until everybody else is gone. I'm the new guy. 
<laughs> is this a feeling that you felt at previous jobs or is it kind of a little different in this case because of the position that you're brought in for? I think essentially it's been the same. I think I've really tended to feel like I need to overachieve in kind of order to prove that I belong. And I think I had I was fortunate enough on this in this office to start off with a, a good team on this firehouse project, which was really run spectacularly well. And it was easy for me to find everything I needed on the project. And I really didn't have to do too much. But the second project I'm working on, it's a little less uh, like the first one. And it's a little more ad hoc. And we've got a bunch of different people working on it. And the, the deadlines are constantly shifting. The scope is constantly changing. So it's really a hard project to, you know, you, when you get into a project, you, 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 you hope that when you get in, that they have everything figured out and you're not trying to figure things out because you're the new guy. You don't want to upset what they're doing. You don't want to create new things where they don't need them. So you're really trying to find your place in the project. And I still haven't figured out where my place is in the project. So it's a lot of, you know, like, you know, checking in with this person, checking with that person. We've got multiple people running different aspects of the project. And sometimes you're like, stepping on each other's toes because one person's kind of in this area and then you're kind of in that area and you're saying, well, what is this? How does this work? And how does this make sense? And it's really, it's a challenge. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to my first, you know, to have a project of my own to kind of really run or at least have a you know, little bit more of a, like a project management over so I can really run with it the way I know how to run with it. So so can I just speak to that, that, you know, here we are in the middle of our careers, definitely, and still in many ways feeling like we're starting something new and we're the, the new person again. And I'm thinking about two different architects in two different states that I spoke to this this week, both of whom are older than me, I'm 47, and they are both starting new things sort of very different from the kind of work they were doing previously. And I was speaking to these students this last week saying, you know, these, these guys are 20 and they're already thinking like they have to start that job and it, it'll be the job they'll have for the rest of their life. <laughs> like, no, in this field, in this profession, we can move around and change so much. And especially because it's such a volatile field, you know, when the recession happens, people lose their jobs, and then you have to start over again. And it's I think it's actually quite common. I mean, we've got on the, the forums right now, and I hope this won't upset him if I mention it, but Mighty AA, the poster, is talking about, you know, he's run his own firm for years, and he's now interviewing for a job. And, it, 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 you know, it's, it's, I think, again, architects are just curious by nature, and we constantly want to try new things. And that's probably good, because we often find ourselves having to start anew again, even at an age when we thought we wouldn't have to. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I'm seeing this in a lot of other fields, in addition to architecture. My brother-in-law, for example, went from engineering to finance. A good friend of mine is going from acupuncture to becoming a park ranger. You know, I think the way our culture right now is very conducive to changing careers, you know at least once or twice in your life. But that said, architecture, I think, provides you with a really strong foundation to extend those skills and experiences into completely other directions, you know, as as our working out of the box series has, has uh, proven. Definitely. So then the other thing, one of the things I've been thinking about too is uh, some of the feedback we've been getting, not on the, not on Arconnect, but just outside of Arconnect regarding the, uh, the interview we did with the, uh, Bob Ivey last week. So it has me reflecting on the nature of criticism and where do you place it? Where do you put it? You know, because I think one of the things that we're going to get a lot of as we keep going moving forward is we're going to get a lot of people criticizing 
either the guest or our take on the guest or our criticism of the guest. And I think to try to be all things to all people is just an absolute recipe for disaster. And, you know, I've made no apologies for it, but I'm a big Howard Stern fan and he's never, you know, he's never modified what, you know, and he's gone through his phases and I can, I can generally chart those paths and, and see where he's, how he's evolved. And, but he's evolved on his own terms and it's not related to a specific criticism. And I kind of think like, well, if we were to take every single piece of criticism, we'd be schizophrenic. I mean, we'd be, you know, batshit crazy at the end of the day trying to figure out who to please. And I think I haven't listened to the the podcast yet. Part of it is because I was like, wow, did I come off really that much of an asshole? I mean, was I really that overly <laughs> critical? I mean, and so I'm like, I would hate to hear that I was so disrespectful to somebody that I wasn't recognizing in the moment. I thought when I was thinking about it, I thought we were, you know, the even with the talk afterwards, it probably wouldn't have developed that way had he been more responsive to the question. So I, I don't have really, I'm not going to apologize for any of the things that I said or any of the things that uh, we asked. I thought we were pretty fair, actually and giving him a platform and saying, he said we didn't interrupt him. We didn't, you know, really correct. I mean, he really went on for a long time and, and he had a great chance to say whatever he wanted to say. And I thought we did a pretty good job there. Well, I mean, we were critical, but, you know, we want more than anything for the AIA to do something that will increase the value of this industry to the public. And it's our job to be critical and question their approach. And in the hopes that we will, you know, that everyone will, get the best results possible from the AIA's initiatives. So, you know, I think our criticism is purely based out of a passion and a, a love for the architecture industry. And this platform of the podcast is supposed to be casual. It's supposed to be not a, a soapbox for our completely scripted opinions and right. criticisms, but instead a place where with all in good intentions and everyone wanting eventually the success and thriving of the profession to discuss these issues as honestly as we can, knowing that we're also like here to have a casual conversation. So we're not here to to do anything other than try to get the same places as Robert Ivy, but maybe just we view it from different perspectives. So I thought it was a great conversation and it really like helped tune things in a way for me. And also, I mean, we we're here being honest. You know, I think when I think it's really we're trying to be as or, you know, I, I believe we're trying to be as transparent as possible. When when we like something, we let it be known that we like it. If we question something, we're going to question it. If we don't like it, we make it pretty clear that we don't like it. We're not trying to sugarcoat the topics or the guests that we have on. Any guest that we have on is a relevant guest that we have invited on because we value their opinion tremendously as an expert in what they do. So, you know, with that said, I think any criticism can be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. And I think what I would suggest is anyone who thought that the interview or the discussion was unfair, just go and take a look at the AIA forums. Just, I mean, just go there and take a look. We aren't even close. And these are AIA members saying the things that they've said. And I saw some pretty wicked commentary, not just about this particular issue, but about Bill Clinton. I mean, we were, we were like priests. I mean, compared to some <laughs> of the criticisms that I read just recently on the AIA forums regarding some of these issues related to the topic. Well, I do not envy Robert Ivey's position at all because, you know, it's, I've in the past, you know, I used to design websites for architecture firms and, and architecture schools. And I know from firsthand experience when it comes to architects, architects are smart, opinionated, 
um, critical, critical, <laughs> and it is impossible to please to please everyone. I mean, it's impossible to please everyone in general, but to please a room full of architects, yeah, is impossible. It's totally impossible. I've always thought the worst project to you know, if you had to. Like, what's your dream project? What's your dream thing to design? And then what's your worst nightmare thing to design? Uh, designing an architecture school, to me, would be awful. It would be the worst <laughs> job. <laughs> it just, it'd be, oh, yeah. We're, we're hypercritical. You can't please, there's always going to be an architect who can criticize something. I think the biggest challenge for me with uh, with regard to what the AIA is doing in Robert Ivey is it wasn't, when we're in school, we ask for a clear demonstration of their process or their thinking so we can understand how they got to the result that they got to. So, I think part of the problem is, is that, I mean, when you read some of the ad piece, the ad, there's an ad, uh, there's a write-up that AIA is kind of putting out in a magazine talking about it. And it was weird because the pronouns that the ad used were he, 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 and it was all related to the architect. And the idea that the very simple, I mean, the overly simplistic idea about looking up, I mean, when an architect, they look up and I'm like, wow, really, does that describe me? So I, I never had a problem with the... I never had a problem with the ad, essentially. I had a problem with the, how the message was being delivered. So the process, really, there wasn't a clear distinction between how they started from point A and what the resultant was and how they got there, how they had made that decision. And I think part of what's inherently interesting about architects is that they're engaged in process. They understand, like, you know, if you demonstrate that you did the work and you can see it on the boards, that, okay, well, I may not agree with it, but I don't think I have an understanding of how they got to there. I think they started at a, you know, saying, well, we want to build our brand. We want to make sure people understand who we are. But I'm like, well, then how does the product and how does the end result relate to what you think you know about architects? And I don't think they've actually made a distinction clearly. But I wanted to um, also point out, and I have a hard time even in commenting on what Donna put up this week about the young young student who was murdered last week, the architecture student. Razan. Yeah. Razan Al-Sahal. I'm not even sure how to pronounce her name. Yeah. I think that particular thread it's i i kept going back and forth do i do i have anything to add to this because of the, what you wrote and what was subsequently put up today said enough i mean i don't know if it said enough but it said more than i could ever possibly add but i wanted to comment i think there's so much kind of negativism that exists either around the the prison discussion and the aia or you know about classical architecture here's a moment where we could celebrate this this particular student's interest in a profession that we're all going to carry forward and she won't be able to. And I think it bears some, we should take a moment to notice that we have something that she'll never have. And, and it seems awfully unfair for someone to be cut down so early in their life. And I wanted to thank Donna for posting that. Yeah. When I heard on the radio that she was an architecture student, it just drove it that much home that much closer to home for me. It's crushing. And, and you know, uh, it, yeah, it's just crushing. So, and it was also one of those things that it was like, I, someone really needs to write a, some kind of memorial for this woman. Razan, I think is how you pronounce it. Like someone really should write a memorial. Someone really should be talking about the fact that she was an architect. And then I thought, well, you know, no one else is going to do it. If I'm thinking about it, I guess I should just do it. So it felt a little presumptuous, but I also just felt like it was something I wanted to make sure we took note of. It's it's horrible. It's crushing to think about. It's just too much. And she's just absolutely beautiful. And her Twitter feed and her Instagrams are hilarious. Like she clearly had an amazing sense of humor. Oh, mm. so awful. Just awful. That's an interesting, you know, part of our culture these days is, you know, when you hear 
of someone dying like that, you know, in the news tragically, you can immediately, you know, look at their social media profiles and it just, it, it hits so much harder, you know, when you see that, what kind of person they were. Yeah. Absolutely. They're not just a name. It's someone who had a personality and you, oh yeah. Didn't Facebook just this week announce that they were going to unveil a tool allowing you Mm -hmm. to decide what would happen with your profile in case you died? Yes. Wow. I don't remember what they call it, a profile guardian or something, who's someone who after you pass is authorized to uh, either take it down or, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that that happens because one of the things um, I was just looking at when you were talking about it is that I still get updates, photo of the day updates from my brother's Facebook page. And he passed away three years ago. So, Mm. and people still go to his Facebook page and post stuff there. And we have access. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't know the password or anything. I don't want to know the password or anything, but I know um, my sister and my other brother, I think my mother has uh, all access to his account. So, so it is, it's interesting to see when that pops up in a on my notifications, I'm like, oh, what did my brother post today? <laughs> it's a new facet of our public life and private lives as well that we're learning how to deal with right now. Yeah. And well, in the least as well, it allows for in these news coverage of these events, however tragic they may be, but just to hopefully encourage an empathetic response. Like the more information we have about a person that just comes from themselves through their various presence, different types of presences, whether online or, or elsewhere, it can only serve to hopefully make the news more empathetic to people and make it easier to, to understand. Gosh, I hope so. If it can bring about more empathy with other people, that's I'm absolutely out for it. There's one good thing of social media. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. Oh, there's many good <laughs> Maybe. things. Maybe. Many, many, many good things. Social media and, in know, quotes, as we the said. The good and yeah. the bad. Yeah. So thank you, Ken, for, for raising that. I, I did feel like it was something I was happy to just be able to put out there that we, you know, this this young woman was, and I, whenever I hear of a, an architecture student or a young architect dying in some way that's, that seems like it should not have happened, it, it's always sad. Um, yeah, it hits closer to home when you hear that. It does. Someone experiences a tragedy like that within our community, because mm-hmm. our community is really not that big. It's not. It's frankly not. A couple hundred thousand at the most. I mean, I think it's 110,000 registered architects or something. Didn't Robert Ivey just say that last week? (laughs) (laughs) Something around 110,000. Correct. And then students. So, yeah, we're just not that big. And, you know, as drove home to me again this this weekend when I went and saw these students, I can sit down with these architecture students and just I understand how to speak with them immediately and they with me. You know, we we share the same concerns. Mm -hmm. We really are a community. Mm -hmm. So how about you guys? Now that Ken and I have taken up most of the podcast. <laughs> well, well, no, actually talking about the community, I had a really strong reminder of how strong and yet intermingling that community is, at least in LA. I went to a kind of preview of the Broad Museum that is not ready to be opened. It won't open until mid-September, but they, this last weekend, were hosting this kind of sneak preview of their third floor gallery space. And there was a press opening for reporters and such on Friday to like poke around and take photos and stuff. And then a general public opening, um, a ticketed opening. Otherwise, the museum will be free when it actually opens. But the sneak peek was ticketed on Sunday. So I kind of got to peruse around in any direction I would look and I would see either a familiar face because I actually knew the person or because 
I'm, you know, follow them on Twitter or like have some digital reference for them. And that was really heartening in a way because, you know, this project, it's been highly publicized and like kind of caught in a lot of crossfire of various controversies regarding like its building and delays and design and all that and everything having to do with DSNR in other parts of the country. But it was just a fantastic confluence of stuff. Being in there was a very interesting experience that I won't say too much about. Um, I'm going to write a piece about it and it will hopefully help explain what was going on there. But um, first of all, it's a great move to have that sneak opening. In the piece that Christopher Hawthorne wrote um, specifically about that space, he mentions that it was kind of a similar move by opening the up parts of the museum a little bit before the official opening, a similar move to what Michael Gobbin did in the reopening of the Resnick Pavilion, where they made part of it available for the public before the official opening. And it's just like a great a great sign of good faith that you can open up to the public and kind of with the still construction dust on the floor and duct tape and electrical tape everywhere. And like kind of just (laughs) showing people like, look, this is, this is what it is. And it's not any less impressive. It's just in this place where it's clearly still coming together. So that's all I'll say for now, but it was great. It was a great experience and great to see kind of the, the confluences of different architectural communities present both from media and profession and education. And for example, I saw a little kid wearing one of Arconnect's coworkers, Alex, Alexander Walters, uh, tiny modernism shirts. <laughs> the tiny, yeah. And that made me, like gave me a little warm, fuzzy feelings inside. So that was, that was great. Um, the next generation. <laughs> I noticed Mimi Zeiger posted a little yes. video from the up there. And I was like, everyone in there is wearing black. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Practically every person walking through was dressed in black. So um, I love your take on it though, Amelia, that um, they were, you know, sort of letting, not making themselves look perfect, but just saying, look, here's who we are right now. Here's how well, how finished we are at this point and uh, come on in. And there's a folk singer from Kentucky who's named Mitch something, and I can't remember his last name, but he says sometimes that that what his mother always told him was, you know, Mitch, sometimes you just got to go out there and show your butt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Meaning you just have to let people see you not perfect and that's okay. Yeah. And they had, there was art currently installed for this particular sneak peek, which was a nice move as well. That is. The third floor was the only one that was open and it was completely open with no temporary walls that would otherwise be arranged to exhibit which, whatever art was installed up there. So it was really just, I don't know the square footage, but just a giant, seemingly just perfect square, giant floor that you walk into and you have the northeast view of the facade or the the veil, as it's called, that's wrapping it. And that's pretty much it. The rest is kind of like white cube. So it was was very interesting. And I actually saw Mimi as I was leaving, she was going. So we kind of got to high five and have that (laughs) confluence be starting all the way down Grand and Grand Grand Avenue? Grand Avenue. Avenue. Okay. No, I was Grand Boulevard as I was walking up. So that was great. It was a great thing. Cool. It's funny you uh, question Boulevard or Avenue. Just this weekend, I was having a conversation with some friends and we're trying to figure out what that, what Avenue Boulevard, what that term is called. And after a lot of researching, we found out that it's actually called the generic so the different ways we signify street types? Yeah. Those so the generic, the generic of ah. Grand is Avenue. Okay. And Grand is the specific. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Great. Okay. So there you go, in case you're ever on Jeopardy and you have that question. <laughs> okay. See, 
somehow, okay, this is coming together in my head somehow because Indianapolis is such a boring city. I mean, I love it, but it's boring. (laughs) But we have tons of generics because we have a Washington Boulevard, Washington Avenue, Washington Street, Washington Way, Washington Drive. It's like they ran out of specifics and just kept tapping on the the generics. So we're a generic city. (laughs) (laughs) That's delightful. (laughs) Hometown pride. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of jokes that people make about Grand Avenue because it has not really been grand for most of its history. And now that the whole Gary plan is still in its weird place for Grand Avenue, that the current icons we have set up there are the Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Gary Walt Disney Concert Hall, and now the Broad. And there's a few more luxe developments that have gone up um, in the recent past, such as the Emerson. And there's the Mocha Contemporary, but that's not so much, it's kind of recessed a little bit. So Grand has its own strange history with like Bunker Hill past and just weird stuff that makes Grand kind of a fun word to refer to it as because it's not totally parallel. Well, did you guys watch any of the 40th anniversary SNL special? Yes. They actually referenced in the Californians uh, skit, they actually (laughs) said they mentioned something about Walt Disney Concert Hall. Really? As in the form of a direction. I think it was the only non-freeway term used. Actually, no, they they refer to streets. Specifics only. Nice. That's an amazing sketch. I I love that sketch. Yeah, I love them. They're hilarious. Oh, my God. But yeah, we had a super Californian week. You did. This was our California week. Paul and I were in Palm Springs the last few days for Palm Springs Modernism Week, which is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's I think now uh, 11, 11 days. days. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's been around for about 10 years. But a week in Palm Springs is 11 days. Okay. <laughs> Time passes differently yeah. there. Seven, seven of those 11 are weekends. Yeah. Yeah. And it's happy hour like at 10 a.m. And just people start. Yeah. And then at 11. And then yeah. <laughs> when Frank Sinatra's 10. house flies the Jim Beam flag, it's time. It's happy hour. That's a little yeah, bit of lore they shared with us. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't Jim Beam. Maybe it was another... Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. Sorry. Sorry, Frank. Yeah. Frank Sinatra's house is also called the Twin Palms house. And between the Twin Palms, he used to have a flag, Jack Daniels flag. And that would be the sign when that flag was raised. It was the sign that it was cocktail hour, just as Amelia just said. Yeah. (laughs) Well, because this is also hilarious because, I mean, were Frank Sinatra to exist today, would there be some app? Like, would he send out yo to all of the dudes in Palm Springs saying it's happy hour? Come on. Or would there still be some type of physical flag raised next to the Twin Palms? We can't say. But it was really fascinating. It was a fascinating trip to this really time capsule space that is Palm Springs. It is renowned for its incredible density. I think like worldwide it has like the most mid-century modern homes per capita, far more than Los Angeles, even though the ones in Los Angeles might be more individually famous. But Palm Springs just has an incredible birth of them. Yeah, the density. The density I mean, is in, insane. in a place like LA, I think... Uh... What I heard was that there may be more in LA, but they're so spread out Mm -hmm. in Palm Springs. I mean, you can just on a quick bus tour of the city, you can just, you know, take in. And the attention to them is different because you have what are effectively in other, in larger cities would be referred to as suburban developments where every home is in the mid-century modern style. And so it's something that those homes, because they actually are native to that era, convey the ideology much more forcefully than just a home somewhere else in LA that was built in like the early 2000s or something that happened to be in the same style. So, and so much has been done to incentivize that type of building in Palm Springs, I believe in like the nineties and the early aughts when the city wasn't nearly as thriving as it is today. 
that they started incentivizing through like tax cuts and such that to, for developers and people to build in that style to continue developing that kind of aura of Palm Springs. And man, like those mountains into the West. And when the sun sets, there's like a good couple hours of daylight where you can't see the sun, but there's just like this magical desert atmosphere that sets in over the whole thing. And it is absolutely beautiful. So Paul and I spent a few days kind of going on tours and hearing lectures and touring houses and such and kind of getting a feel for what Palm Springs modernism is, I suppose. It was a lot of fun. I personally had a, I had a tour at the Sunnylands Resort, which is uh, the Annenbergs, the Annenberg family there winter home when they weren't in, I believe, Michigan, or I'm not exactly sure where they were coming from, but it's a, it's an oasis. It's literally an oasis. It's a giant golf course estate in uh, Rancho Mirage that now is, you know, where Obama will stay if he's on some dignitary mission <laughs> or some diplomatic move <laughs> that requires him to uh, visit the deserts of Southern California. It's an incredible space. The, um, the home itself is designed by a Quincy Jones and the rest is just you know, it's like stacked floor to ceiling with more money worth in art than I will ever see in my lifetime. So it's it's an incredible space. And its own golf course. Right? And its own golf course where we saw golf balls that there's a high likelihood were recently hit by President Obama. I can't say that for sure. <laughs> and neither could our tour guide. Um, also, most of the tour takes place in a golf cart, which is handy. It's feel, kind, of like, kind of like a Jurassic Park of modernist architecture. Yeah. You, like, don't leave the vehicle. <laughs> Can you bicycle around it? Paul, did you, could you bicycle? Around Palm Springs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, the uh, Modernism Week camp, actually called camp, which I... What, what did camp stand for? The community... Community and meeting place. Yeah. Uh, they actually had a huge bike parking area for people and they encouraged people to bike and walk because there were a lot of the events and destinations were within walking distance mm -hmm. and the weather could not have been better. I mean, Fantastic. crystal clear blue skies, 78 degrees. I mean, it was just it was amazing. amazing. Yeah. I think there were even some bike tours, tours around different neighborhoods where groups of, I guess, 10 or 15 or so people would be on bikes. And mm -hmm. I didn't hear of any giant mass collisions. So <laughs> I think that went pretty well. One of the things that I really liked a lot with Modernism Week, I didn't notice until nighttime, but you can just drive or walk or bike around town. And there are buildings all over the place that are marked with these lit projections, just like in a museum indicating who the architect was the year it was built. Wow. So it was like, it was like walking around a city that's you cool. know, sized uh, architectural museum. So I have to ask you guys, because I've always felt this way when I go to really good examples of mid-century modernism. Did you like dress up for the tours? <laughs> like, did you, you know, did you feel like you had to put on something really snappy looking, like something Frank would approve of and That's funny. carry a martini glass in your hand? Or were you just like in your, you know? Well, I went to, I went to a party on Tuesday night at the Christopher Kennedy compound. And I was a little uh, curious about, about the, the dress. So I checked the invitation and it said, highly suggested professional or time professional, machine, <laughs> professional or formal attire. Tuxes. So I, yeah, but, um, everybody at this party, it was, it was a really interesting crowd. I mean, it was like something truly like out of Mad Men. It was very, um, was it? you know, Palm Springs attracts that, that person of leisure who tends to have a lot of money, a lot of a very deep appreciation for design, specifically mid-century design, you know, loves a good cocktail and, uh, don't we all, and <laughs> is well tanned. And the party was filled with a lot of, you know, everybody was very, very good looking and, uh, well-rested. 
and enjoying themselves. Yeah. And uh, it, it was uh, it was a perfect party crowd. God, well rested is really the sign of luxury these days, isn't it? If you're well rested, yes, very well rested. You're somehow way more fortunate than most of the world. Well, but Donna, yeah. your question about attire is actually hits on upon something interesting and in how Palm Springs modernism has kind of been developing over the last 10 years. It's started out only as a few days and then has kind of grown more and more each year to become this now giant event that brings in a lot of revenue for these different historical societies that put on these tours and events. That it's an entirely charitable thing, but the all of the um, ticket sales and everything goes back into those preservation and historical societies. So because of that, they're able to kind of bring in more and more things, but they also want to encourage a younger crowd. And the way that they're doing that is you know, just throwing parties, things that aren't necessarily relevant to architecture in any way or mid-century mm-hmm. modernism in particular, but just to say, hey, we want you to come and experience Palm Springs and see what this is like. And often that means that, you know, you throw a party for whatever millennial upper set that you want to come and then they kind of get hooked. Everyone we talked to had this kind of temporary hypnosis going on of like being in Palm Springs and having it be this like special zone where they just kind of fall in love with it and then return year after year. And then once they get old and rich enough, they decide to kind of adopt it as a, as a vacation space and they kind of, they move in. And that trajectory and that development is something that Palm Springs Modernism Week is really aware of. And so they want to kind of encourage people to come back to Palm Springs and set up a presence there so that when, you know, the, the major population of mid-century modernism, like the baby boomers, are no longer here to support it. And it's easy to see that how actually that will continue on because people just love they have magical experiences there that they all relate to. And they just say, you know, I'm going to come back. One of the things that I was most impressed with, with our conversation with uh, Mark Davis that we're going to move along to pretty soon is um, the fact that over 90% of all the money that this event generates, which is a lot of money. I mean, this year has been record-breaking attendance. It's crazy how many people go to these events. Over 90% of all the money that they generate goes directly into preservation of Palm Springs modernism, which was impressive. I mean, and and you can really see that happening all over town. So what do you guys think? Should we move on to our conversation with Mark Davis? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a magical place. Let's hear more. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Well, this is our 10th year anniversary, so we're pulling out all the stops this year to celebrate for that. Modernism Week started as a weekend event with the Modernism Show that is at the convention center, Dolphin Productions. They had started about five years previously. And the convention, the head of that, Rosemary Krieger, had contacted a local preservation group because they wanted to do an opening night and they thought it'd be nice to have the funds go towards local preservation. And that's with the Palm Springs Preservation Foundation. It was entitled differently then, but now it's the Palm Springs Preservation Foundation. And they worked together and did an opening party. And they thought, well, let's do a couple of tours over the weekend. I think it was even a day. It may not have even been a weekend. And they were worried if even anyone would show up. So that was the first year. Maybe an opening party and maybe three or four events. Then they added on more the next year. Traditionally, the museum had a symposium the following weekend after the show. So to incorporate that, they started filling in between during the week. So there might have been two or three things to do during the week. Kept growing. Modernism Week became 11 days. And now we have 240 events over the course of 11 days, many of them free, many of them reasonably priced. And we have some very expensive galas and dinners and things like that. But it has grown substantially. We are expecting this year upwards to 50,000 plus people over the course of 11 days. 
it's just been amazing. And each year it grows and grows and grows. Wow. And can you talk a little bit about where the money goes for, oh, from, from this event? We are a 501c3, and we work with the other organizations of the preservation groups, such as Palm Springs Preservation Foundation, Palm Springs Modern Committee, the Architecture and Design Center, the Architectural Design Council, the Palm Springs Historical Society, and then many, many neighborhood groups. And how it works is that we're the marketing umbrella for all of their events. It saves them the time and money of marketing and advertising. We handle all of the ticketing. We handle all the ticketing issues, credit card, all of that, getting them issued, doing check-in lists. When it's all said and done, and every month we pay out towards the organizations. And roughly it's 90% of the money goes directly back to all of the organizations. So for instance, in the neighborhood groups, we're very proud about that. Three years ago, we only had two or three neighborhoods. Then last year, it was about eight maybe 10. This year, we have over 20 neighborhood groups from Palm Springs all the way down to Palm Desert and Indian Wells. And what they do is if it's like an historic condominium complex, the Homeowners Association group will curate a tour of homes or a tour of units. Today, there's a big one down in Sandpiper in Palm Desert. They sold almost 400 tickets. There were 52 tickets short of selling 400 tickets. The money that they are earning from that, they're giving to the local Palm Springs Art Museum Palm Desert location, the Galen, for a lecture series. And then they're also going to be sponsoring a scholarship for a College of a Desert student. Other locations, such as Racket Club Garden Estates, last year they were designated an historical district, the second one in Palm Springs. The organizers there said, we're going to have two days, we're really going to promote it, we need to raise money because we have to get our landscaping done. And they wanted to recreate pretty much what Bill Cody had done when the landscaping was first installed, they raised $48,000 over the course of two days. And all of that went for restoration of their property. Royal Hawaiian Estates, they've been doing it now for about six or seven years. And it was very sad. It's a beautiful Polynesian-styled modernist complex, Wexler and Harrison. But in the 80s and 90s, it was not so appreciated. All of it got stripped away, the tiki aspects, the Polynesian aspects, things got painted over, stone got painted over. And they have, over the course of five or six years, literally, it's, it's renewed. It looks beautiful. And in part from the funds being raised by Modernism Week or during Modernism Week. So the homeowners don't get assessed. They end up having their properties enhanced in value. And they were the first historic residential district that was nominated and approved in Palm Springs. So it's all been working well towards getting people from around the world out into the various neighborhoods, Twin Palms, Racket Club Estates. And some of these neighborhoods were not all that nice 10 years ago. And yet this year we will have 6,700 people walking through the neighborhoods from all over the world. We'll have 3,800 people on double-decker buses traveling through all the neighborhoods, experiencing what Palm Springs is known for, if we had a commission for everyone who said, I was on a bus tour three years ago and I came back and bought a house, we would be extraordinarily well off because people fall in love with it. And it's almost like a sightseeing tour to see where they would like to own a home in the various neighborhoods. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what makes the modernism of Palm Springs specific and how the desert climate interacts with the otherwise modernist aesthetic that is different from other places in the U.S. or throughout the world. When modernism first started in Palm Springs, the very first 
quote-unquote modernist building was the Oasis Hotel and Tower by Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son. It still exists downtown. It was a beautiful Art Deco-ish, but very modern. I think it's called slip-poured concrete. Forgive me if that's the incorrect term. And it still exists. Half of the hotel was torn down. We're hoping to save this further on. And if you're in town driving around, we light it at night to highlight the fact that it's such a beautiful building during Modernism Week. In fact, we light about 20 properties throughout the city along Palm Canyon with the name of the architect the year it was built and how beautiful it was or how beautiful it is. So that was the first modernist building per se. Then Albert Frey came to town, and I'm involved in a committee that we're bringing Albert Frey's 1931 Illuminaire House to Palm Springs. It was built for an exhibition. It's sort of been homeless for a few years. They had a lecture in Palm Springs. The architects who saved the house, basically, they came up to, for Modernism Week, had a lecture. They lost the place that they were going to put it in New York. So we said, well, did you consider Palm Springs as Plan B? So for a year, we've been working on it, and we've raised the funds, and it is coming out to Palm Springs. So Albert Frey, after he did the Illuminaire House, came out to the desert because his partner in that, the other architect, was A. Lawrence Coker, and Coker's brother was building a building in Palm Springs. So he had Frey come out, and they designed a building, which looks remarkably like the Illuminaire House, except rather than an all-metal house, it was done in typical wood frame and stucco. And that building still exists. It's the Coker-Sampson building on Palm Canyon. Again, if you drive by, it's lit up. It says Albert Frey, A. Lawrence Coker. 1934. So that was Albert Frey's first taste of Palm Springs. He went back to New York for a couple of years, worked at the Museum of Modern Art on various projects with Philip Johnson. There was an exhibition, but then he came back to Palm Springs. He loved it out here. And he was part of the the original desert modernist, and that would include uh, Chambers, a Clark, a Purcell, then a little bit later on in generation, uh, E. Stuart Williams, Bill Kreisel, Donald Wexler, Bill Cody, they started working in this vernacular. And one, we were a desert community of vacation homes for the most part at that point. It was after the war, people were looking for a different style. The desert architects, they knew how to incorporate the inside outside these beautiful vistas. They understood how the sun worked. They understood that eaves have to go different ways and the way you cite the house and such. And it just started growing on itself. Hollywood, famous people came. They're very much a trendsetter. Frank Sinatra had E. Stuart Williams design a house for him, which in the modern style, it was either going to be a Georgian style or a modern style. And thank God he chose the modern style because that also set the tone. That was, forgive me, I'm a little shy on the date, but about 1946 or so. I can verify that if you would like. Nonetheless, it set the tone. Well, Frank Sinatra has this gorgeous modern home and, and it's stone and it's glass and it's steel and it's got a cool pool. Everyone else wanted that too. The Alexanders came to town in the 1950s and they bought up a lot of land. They had had quite some success in building typical tract homes in the LA area. The Alexanders were a father and son development team. And the son had gone to school, college with Bill Kreisel, and they had an idea for a certain type of house that they wanted to build. And they asked Alexander Sr. to purchase some land, and they developed Twin Palms, which was the first modern tract house development in Palm Springs for the most part. It was hugely successful. They sold within days. They kept building more. Then they built Alexander's Racket Club Estates, Vistalis Palmas. More than 3,000 homes 
built in Palm Springs within a very short period of time. They pretty much doubled the population and they were very popular. They were perfect homes for the seasonal living in Palm Springs. Not so great in the summer because it was so hot. They weren't really insulated, things like that. But no one lived here really in the hot summer months. They were here for a few months during the wintertime when it was the most perfect weather. Other people choose their development in Tockett's River Estates. About 48 homes, I believe. And it was in the mid-40s. They broached that middle ground between a typical house of the time and sort of a modernist structure. But the advertising was huge windows overlooking your gardens and carports and open area on a big lot of land. And they were very popular as well. So it just started all growing on itself. The other architects, they also took on commercial projects. Quite frankly, it was less expensive to build in the modernist vein with stainless steel with glass and and stone than it was to do the stucco wood frame. And so things like schools and gas stations and fire stations. The architects who were designing homes were also designing our civic properties. In fact, at the time, Palm Springs had an ordinance that gas stations had to have an architectural pedigree to it. You couldn't just put something up. So that's why we have the beautiful tramway gas station that Frey and Chambers had done at the entry to town. Uh, Cody did a beautiful shell station that's still there. Sadly, quite a few others have been torn down. But that was just a period of time that, that civically it was considered important to have architects do to provide a look to the city hall. It was after the Frank Lloyd Wright Marin County Courthouse. This was probably the first modern civic center built in America. And other civic centers followed suit because rather than these imposing, you know, Grecian or Roman temples with the big pillars and the heavy stones, and it's sort of intimidating, it was very human-scaled, very low to the ground, lots of glass. And it sort of sent the message that the citizens were welcome into City Hall. The same with the banking. Banking went through a certain period of time. Before the war, you wouldn't see a bank that wasn't a big temple-like structure because it had to look important and heavy and strong. That's where people kept their money. After Depression, after the war, also when women started doing all of the shopping and taking care of a lot of things, in the previous banks, a woman wouldn't go into an office by herself with a man. But in the new banks, it was transparent. You could see the vaults from the street. So you knew, oh, that's a bank and it's safe. And I see that the money is protected. Glass and windows, uh, full height, open office areas. And everyone felt welcome to come into the banks. And the best example of that is now our new architecture and design center, Edwards Harris Pavilion, which just opened in November. And that's an East Stuart Williams 1961 structure, international style floating pavilion. Marmal Red Zener did the restoration. It is absolutely stunning. And I recommend that anyone, if they're in Palm Springs, you rush to go see this structure, because it was almost lost. It was almost torn down. It was almost built over with a tall structure on top of it. Probably the best example we have of adoptive reuse in town at the moment. We have the Frey gas stations, now the visitor center. We have a few other locations as well, but this is just stunningly beautiful. Perfection. Well, continuing on that thread, and you mentioned that clearly Palm Springs Modernism Week has had no problem attracting more and more people every year. It's just growing and becoming more and more of a strong presence and bringing in money to keep these preservation efforts going. Is there a 50-year goal or a time frame for the week or the event where you can imagine modernism kind of shifting its role in Palm Springs or maybe even attracting more new built work? 
or what do you imagine being the future of modernism in Palm Springs? Well, speaking of new built work, we not only celebrate our mid-century modern heritage, but also celebrate contemporary architecture and design that that adheres to the aesthetics of mid-century modern. So we have expanded in that manner. Many of our signature home tours have new homes by local architects who have done stunning, stunning properties. Lance O'Donnell, Sean Lockyer uh, are two examples. So we have expanded in that manner. We incorporate design. We incorporate the culture. As far as growing, we can't build any more mid-century modern buildings, but we work hard to support the preservation groups to protect what we do have. We've had some significant losses recently, and it was heart-wrenching to lose the spa hotel colonnade. It was just one of the most stunning structures, but it was torn down. We will be in a battle or an engaged effort to save the Town & Country Center. It's the only Art Deco modern 1940 structure pretty much left in Palm Springs and the only one of its type. It's a mixed-use complex that was very popular at the time in Southern California. And that will be the next challenge to save that because currently on the city plan, there's a road going through it now. And that would be a terrible, terrible, terrible loss to the state and to the country. There has already been a national designation application submitted for this structure. So that's part of it as well. So we will work to help preserve it. We help to celebrate design. We also have a lot of fun because quite often people come here from all over. They want events and parties and nights. So we've expanded to events every single night. And some nights, I mentioned on Sunday, we had five big events going on, all different kinds at the same time. We know that we can't continue to grow super big this the holiday weekend. So we have started something in the fall called Modernism Week Preview. And that started out as a day or two event to tie in with Docomomo Day three years ago. We added more on. This October, we had four double-decker bus tours a day. We had a home tour. We had some parties. And, and the Architecture and Design Museum had an opening Welcome Back ADC party. We sold out that weekend. We've expanded into October to have a fall preview weekend, which is now four days, and who knows, it may be a week within the next year or two. And we are looking to also expand probably in May, because that's Preservation Month, and we'd like to work with the local community and the historic board of the city government on education and and, uh, tours, things that are also fun as well. Because the mission of Modernism Week was always education and entertainment. It may not be quite interesting to those who are novices to sit through very, very technical architectural symposiums and lectures. We have an audience for that, and that is offered. But for myself, I've always had an interest in architecture, but I came to Palm Springs, and I go, oh, I sort of like this modernism weekend. The first time I came, I left with a contract on a house, 1996. And I learned more about it. I was, I'm not an architect by training. And I see that every time modernism comes around. People that came two or three years ago, she goes, oh, you know, we started a movement back in our hometown. In Phoenix, they have a movement going. And in Tucson and in Sacramento, Sarasota has started their second modernism week. So in a way, it's expanding on that basis. People that they liked it, they thought it was pretty architecture. They, you know, liked living in it. But then they started learning more about it. They would go home and they would see what's around their community. And that's also part of the entertainment portion of it, because sometimes you get people in for the fun and the parties. 
Maybe they don't go on lectures, maybe they go on tours, but after a couple of cool house parties, they become interested and they want to learn more. And the lectures every year, I had a full house for every single lecture yesterday, 350 people during eight lectures, and it was all on Michigan Modern. Basically how closely tied Southern California is to Michigan at that time, and how so much of what we know in California actually came from design in Michigan, like Herman Miller. Even the Eameses and many architects who had worked with the furniture companies and the car companies. And California, it was the perfect place for that to grow and expand because we were sunshine, we didn't have snow, we didn't have rain. And it just, it grew much larger in California than it did in the Midwest. But there's a lot of time between. And I was stunned that we had so many people at every single one of those lectures. And a lot of them I remember coming a few years ago that I didn't think they would ever go to a lecture about that. But they come to learn and they also come to have fun. So that's what we are doing. We're we're year-round programming, concentrating on education, concentrating on entertainment. So what are some of the highlights this year? Oh, gosh. Or maybe some of the most popular events. Our double-decker bus tours are always the most popular. We are now stretched to do six a day because it's a volunteer organization. We have to find the guides and the navigators, things like that. So it's becoming ever more difficult to find the right people, but we are working on that to start a training program that we need to do so that we can even offer more bus tours. We've extended down further into the Coachella Valley. So for the first time this year, we had an Indian Wells Mint Century Modern Home Tour. And I have to admit, someone who is a founder of the Architectural Design Center, a friend, she said, would you consider doing Indian Wells as a Mint Century Modern? And I said, well, what is down there? I wasn't quite sure myself. I was thinking of gated communities, things like that. She took me down on a very hot day in July, and I'm looking at these houses going, yes, we've got to put a tour together. She did. We have eight homes on a tour. They're stunning. And that tour sold out within a month of being on the website. From And looking at the list of people, there were very few local people. They were from all over the country and from six other countries as well. So we're very pleased to be offering programs further down the valley. And it's also good for our repeat customers. They get to see something different. We have double-decker bus tours down there, a tour of Sandpiper, the Schindler O'Toole House as an iconic home tour. Then in Rancho Mirage, we have the Tamarisk Ranchos Estates, which they had two days of tours. They sold out completely on that because it was new and people read about it. They didn't know it was there. So we look forward to continually. There's an amazing wealth of architecture in this valley, and it's been concentrated on Palm Springs, which is the largest concentration really in the country. LA has a lot, but it's very spread out. Other places like Columbus, Indiana, magnificent modern buildings and structures, but they're mostly commercial and civic buildings, not that many modern homes. Palm Springs has it all, and we're in a little condensed area. And it's easy to see what you were driving into a neighborhood, you could go back in time, 50 years. It's very easy to fill that because the houses have just been so beautifully restored. We have, and on our double-decker tours, new this year, we have Charles Phoenix doing the three of them next weekend or this coming weekend, which we realized the bus tours are very educational, but we wanted a fun component on it too. And he's going to be educational and fun. They sold out like that as well. So we know people like this. They like to be entertained. They like to be educated and entertained at the same time. We have camp, which is our centralized meeting place. Camp is community and meeting place. It's not the most imaginative name, but it works. And we've never done this before. We started with an empty lot right in the heart of the Uptown Design District. And within seven days, we have a 30,000 square foot tent with bamboo flooring, sustainable, reusable. 
It was used before. It's going to be used again. Air-conditioned. Beautiful setup. The lighting is amazing. A small um, exhibition going on there. We have happy hour every day at the bar. There's food service there. We have lectures. We have a film every day. There's a wonderful store, and that's where all of our bus tours start from. So that is the first time we've ever had a very visible presence in Palm Springs. Normally, we're just sort of in a hotel ballroom to check people in, things like that, or the check-ins are at different locations. But this was very centralized. It's hugely popular. We've seen major publicity, and the opening party was a blast. We had uh, Jason Bentley from KCRW doing Throwback Thursday, spinning from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and everyone dressed according to how they most felt. So that was a fun event. We also have the largest vintage trailer show we've ever had, and it's probably one of the largest in the country now, over the course of two days next weekend. Again, fun, because it attracts a whole different group of people, and they just love seeing how owners have lovingly restored these beautiful Airstreams and funky little 1950s pop-up tent trailers and things like that. There will be about 64, and for the first time, we're going to have an evening party there so everyone can see how they look lit up at night. And then the trailer owners get to mix with all the people. And that's fun, but it's also educational. And it does appeal to a whole different audience that might not be so interested in architecture. But they're interested in trailers because that's their passion. Good Lord, we have so many new things going on this year. Are the events each year similar or based on previous year's events? Or are there new events that are... We have our double-decker bus tours. We have our signature home tours. And we have our lecture series every year. So the lectures, of course, change every year. The homes change every year, but those will happen regardless. Yes, we have new events that come on. For instance, up at the Lautner Hotel, there's this amazing Australian comedian, architect comedian. I guess that's an unusual combination to what's, put together. What's his name? Ross is his last name, and I okay. can look it up. I'm we'll, so sorry. we'll include it in okay. the show notes. Okay. Anyway... What he has done in Australia is he goes to people who own a significantly important modern home. They invite him, and they have like the salon of 20, 30, 40 people. And he just does a routine on modern architecture. I haven't been to it yet because, unfortunately, with being on the planning committee, we don't get to do a lot of these things. But I've heard wonderful things about it, and the Hotel Lautner has him up there for two nights. The Lautner is also doing tours and a wine-tasting dinner at the Two Bunch Palms, the new restaurant there. So we've extended up that direction, and that's been very popular. Is there a way or are, are there opportunities for architects to get involved in Modernism Week? Oh, absolutely. We have had amazing architects speak at our lecture series. We've had Mama Red Zeno. We've had Stephen Ehrlich. Who was just recently on our podcast. So for architects that are listening to this or that are inspired by Modernism Week, is there a way that architects can reach out to the organization to propose ways to be involved? And in Yeah, it just it depends on, on what it is. Lecturing, we'd love to have architects lecture during Modernism Week. They're always our most popular lectures. And there are some, whoever's listening out there, that I would love to have next year on hand to speak. I'm Mark at ModernismWeek.com. It's very easy to get a hold of us. So for people that have not been yet and are getting excited listening to this, when do you announce your upcoming schedule? You know, how can people get on a list to get notified? Of? They can go to the website now, modernismweek.com, and add their email address for updates to opt in to receive yearly updates or actually sometimes monthly or even more 
depending on how close it is to when we start selling tickets, which is November 1st. The website goes live. And at that point, we have about 80% of the events online. And we add some more in December and January because it's not always possible to have every event completely planned by November 1st. But our website, I'm so happy it didn't go down because it was the most we've ever had on our website. Ticket sales, hits, people on pages reading about things. It was phenomenal. I don't have the exact details for the entire period, but in January, we had six and a half million hits in the first 10 days of February, more than two million. Where are those coming from? Like, how do people find out about Modernism Week and where do they visit from? It's been 10 years, so there are a lot of people who just, they mark their calendar and they're on the website because they know to buy the Retro Martini Party and the home tours because they sell out the quickest and Sunnylands and the Freyhouse tours. They're minimum participants. We wish we had 10 Sunnylands for people to go through, but we can't. We wish we had four Frey homes to go to, but we don't. And they're small tours, 7 and 12 and 14, so they do sell out quickly. People know to buy those. But we do do marketing. We have social media. Secret Agent PR has been doing a terrific job on our social media on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter. We have the PS Mod Squad, who are 12 bloggers from a variety of disciplines. Some are architects, some are designers, some are just shoppers, and some are fashionistas. But it incorporates a very wide range of people then to come in and they blog during Modernism Week. Between them, they have more than 2 million followers. So that's, we've learned that social media is a very important strategy to use for Modernism Week. And it it does pay off for us. We advertise, but we don't do a lot of advertising. Again, it's, it's very expensive to do print advertising. We do closer up to the date for certain things, lectures, but most everything is through our website and social media. And it just grows. I could print a list of people. I think we have 24 countries in every state, about 48 states who have purchased tickets this year. Lots from Australia, Canada, of course. Germany is very popular. Italy, England. And then lots of just a few from Belgium, a few from here, a few from there, South Africa. People do plan and they've heard about it. They want to come. Usually the comments we get on feedback is, I've been willing to come for years. I hope next year I can. I hope next year I can. That kind of thing. And we hope that everyone has a wonderful, memorable time. We think they do. We hope they do. The weather's certainly glamorous this time of year. Yeah, it couldn't so, be better um, this year. And that that's helpful as well for getting from the colder states back east and the wet states up north. They love coming to Palm Springs. And this is a good excuse to come down for it. Well, I just arrived in town and I'm excited to get on this bus tour in a half an hour. Oh, oh that's wonderful. I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to that. There's a brochure that is given out, just a fold-over thing, but it lists every architect that has practiced in Palm Springs. And it's a list of maybe 30 internationally known architects. Of course, we have our Neutras and the local architects. We call it our 12 Desert Modernist, and we just published a small book in celebration of 10 years honoring that group of of modernists such as uh, Frey and Neutra and Wexler, Kreisel, who sort of set the Palm Springs look, Cody, beautiful write-ups about them, Lautner's included. But we also have um, Pereira, and it doesn't matter. Take a look in there. That'll be your notes for that. (laughs) We'll, We'll scan it for the show notes. And on the educational part of it, too, there's a glossary of terms that we use because we found out that quite often when on the description, We'll say something like clear story window or folded plate roof or pattern cement block. Not quite sure what that is. So I did a glossary and hopefully they will say 
review the glossary because these terms will be used throughout the bus tour. And at the end of the tour, you'll be very familiarized with the most known terms of mid-century modern structures, butterfly roofs, that kind of thing. And it's great fun. And it's educational. We throw in a little fun, a little Hollywood stuff, Frank Sinatra's house, of course, things like that. But it's also including before modernism came to Palm Springs, we had beautiful Spanish architecture. That was the style of the day. And there's some stunning estates done in the 20s, particularly, that we're very proud to have in Palm Springs. And that's also part of the bus tour. We do not turn our back on that. In fact, one of our most popular events is up at the O'Donnell House. It's called Martinis on the Mountain. Well, Martinis is very mid-century modern, but the O'Donnell House is very Spanish eclectic. But it happens to be that have the best view of Palm Springs, so the two mix together very well. And that sells out every year, too. So we incorporate everything in commercial buildings, the neighborhoods, schools, commercial structures, civic structures. It's a great tour, and I would appreciate knowing what you think when you come back. I'll let you know. Great. Thanks so much for talking to us about, about Modernism Week. So for those of you that caught this podcast shortly after it aired, Modernism Week is continuing until February 22nd in Palm Springs. I endorse it. I think Amelia endorses it. Definitely check it out. If not this year, uh, maybe next year. Palm Springs is a pretty cool place. So it's a good opportunity for a little vacation and mid-century modern architecture. And if you go, a couple of the houses that I really wish I could have visited is the Frey 2 house and the Bogan Villa house. It's not Bogan Villa, it's Bogan Villa house. That was also, um, there was an addition designed by Albert Frey and both of those houses are just amazing. So anyways, that's our show. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, Brian will be coming back, our legal correspondent. So if you have any specific legal questions, shoot them our way so we don't have to be so generic. And uh, you can uh, hit us up on Twitter with hashtag Sessions. Send us an email to connect at rconnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. I know it's very difficult to find where to rate or review, but we'll be happy to, uh, to help you find that if you want to ask us. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Hey, thanks a lot. Good talking to you guys. Till next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.